So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. The seven deadly sins are not biblical. By that, I mean you will not find them listed off by Jesus in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount. They're not etched in stone, handed down to Moses in the shadow of Mount Sinai. And yet, we have this religious and even cultural awareness that there's a list of things we're not supposed to do. This list of seven actually comes from a 6th century desert-dwelling monk who, while retreating from the temptations of the city of the world, out in the wilderness he discovered his own sin. And after praying and pleading, he wrote down about these seven challenges that make it next to impossible for us to be a community, for us to be a church. These seven are pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lechery. Or by their more elegant Latin names, superbia, invidia, ira, asadia, avaricia, gula, and my favorite, luxuria. I think it's a bit odd to call these seven sins deadly, because surely murder, which by the way, not on the list, murder has to be more deadly than sloth, but in fact it's their generative qualities that make them so dangerous. In other words, hopefully we don't have any murderers among us in worship this morning, but every one of us here has been guilty at one point or another of pride or of envy. These sins are so ordinary, so pervasive in our lives that we often fail to see how much they warp our lives. Now on Wednesday, for Ash Wednesday, as some of us gathered here for the imposition of the ashes, we considered the great sin of pride. That seductive belief that we are better than everyone else when the truth of the matter is we're all dust. And to dust we shall return. It's not an easy word to share. It's an even harder word to receive. And yet the words of our dustness are only ever given in the light of the cross and the empty tomb, which means that even though we're dust, dust isn't the end. But in this mortal coil, as we come to grips with the fact that there's no shade in the shadow of the cross, we do so, we go from day to day with so many challenges, some of which are included in the seven. We all know there are things we shouldn't do. And we all know there are things that we're supposed to do. We don't need a preacher to tell us about the evils of murder, adultery, theft, these physical and tangible acts that make a mockery of the good lives that God has given to us, which makes something like envy all the more difficult to talk about, to wrap our heads around, because envy isn't something we do. Envy is something that we feel. Envy is something we feel. Envy Latin, invidia, it's that painful awareness that someone else has something that we want. The theologian Thomas, Thomas Aquinas said that envy is the sin of wishing that things were other than they are in our lives. And that's true, but I think it's actually more than that. It's not just about a hopeful yearning for something to be different, for something to change. It's about looking at another person. And in the in the business of looking at their blessings, we diminish our lives because we think our lives aren't that good, and we also diminish their lives because they have what we want. Envy is secretive. It's hidden. 
it seethes and it stews up until us until it blows up. And even though envy is something we feel, envy has the power to destroy us. Envy destroys the one who envies because you never actually really get the thing that you want. And envy also destroys the envied because by looking at what they have, we will justify and rationalize this imbalance to the point that it will lower them in our eyes simply because they have the thing that we want. In short, envy can make our friends into our competitors. Envy can turn our families into fountains of frustration. To be human means to be in community, and every single community, whether we want it or not, has a pecking order in which individuals will position and reposition themselves so they can either go higher or be brought lower. And envy works her best magic in close range. Now we can, if we want, envy the celebrities and the powerful that we perceive through our screens, but it's a whole lot easier to envy the people that we encounter in real life. Envy breeds on proximity. There was a landowner, it's time for the harvest and he needs help, so he goes out to hire some people early in the morning. I'll pay you $100, or I'll pay you a Reese's peanut butter cup. And they start to work, and the, the, the landowner is so excited, so looking forward to the harvest that during the midday, he goes out and he gets more people to work. He says, I'll, I'll pay you what's fair. He's so excited, does it at 3 o'clock, and then he goes out again at 5 o'clock. Right before the bell's going to ring for the end of the day, he hires a few people. Harvest comes in. It's time to settle up. So he gathers everybody around, and he finds the last people, the ones who only worked for five minutes, and he gives each of them 100 bucks, a Reese's peanut butter cup one by one until he gets to the first people and he gives them the same that he gave to the people at the end and they are incensed. This is a joke, right? I mean, who do you think you are? Paying them the same that you paid us. We're the ones that have been out in the sun all day. The landowner says, friend. Is there anything more dismissive in scripture? <laughs> friend. Did we not agree to your pay at the beginning of the day? Am I not to do with money what I choose? Or are you envious because I am generous? In Greek, it says, ophthalmos paneru. Is your eye evil? That's the translation for envy. Is your eye evil? Because I am generous. And then Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. I don't know about you. This parable doesn't sit too well with me. I mean, surely, Jesus has to know, right? That you have to pay people for what they've done. This parable makes it out that God is unfair. It's no wonder that this parable tends to be elevated in and among newer Christians rather than those who have been following the Lord for a long time. And you can't blame us. I mean, I'm a cradle Methodist. I've been in church every Sunday for about 35 years. That's a long time. Fred Sisler's been coming to church for 125 years. <laughs> And God has the gall to say, I'm going to give to Fred and to Taylor the same that I'm going to give to somebody who walks through the door for the first time today. Now, if you're here for the first time, that sounds like good news. But if you're like me, if you were doused in water by some preacher long ago, if you've had to suffer through and cry through, be bored to tears through sermons in Sunday school, why should I not be envious of the people who just showed up at the last moment? Shouldn't God know better than to give the same to everybody? But grace, grace is freely offered 
to any and all comers without any regard to merit. And that sounds irresponsible. Even when the truth of the matter is the fact that grace being offered to me is no more or less miraculous than it's offered to someone who walks through the door at the very last second. Grace is only ever grace because it's given to people who don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. Which means, at one point or another, it includes every one of us. Whether we've been in church every Sunday of our lives or it's our first. Grace is very different than envy. Because envy is all about keeping score. Envy is about keeping notes in our ledger book, in our minds. It's about noticing who did what and for how long, whereas Jesus' story, and frankly, every parable for that matter, is the proclamation that God has gotten out of the scorekeeping business. God says, that's not what I'm going to do anymore, but we can't seem to kick the habit. Envy is so deeply seated within us that we can't imagine a world without envy. And we're envious of so many things. We're envious of everything. I think mostly it's like the people in the parable, we're envious of those with money or those we think have more money than us. Usually the people we think have more money than us don't actually have more money than us. Pro tip. They just seem to have more money than we think they do. But envy, again, isn't just about money. It's seeing anyone with something we wish we had. And we'll talk more about money. It gets its own sin. Avarice, greed. But I think there is a subject of our envy that we're all aware of. It's so, so common that we don't even realize how insidious it is. And it's living in the pursuit of what I'm going to call the cool. The cool. Now, I'm a 35-year-old balding pastor who loves to read the Bible. So I am definitionally uncool. I've made peace with that. I'm so uncool that I know there's a new word for cool that's somehow cooler than cool, and I can't even bring myself to say that word out loud in church. But I, I think we all know what the word means, what it conveys. That elusive aura that surrounds an idea or a look or a behavior or a group or an individual that is aspirational to those who are outside. In other words, cool is the subject of our envy. But the problem with whatever is cool is that whatever is cool is fleeting. Something ceases to be cool the minute that we achieve it or we wear it or whatever. Nothing stays cool forever. That's the point. I have some examples of this. Eric, if you can go to the first one. Uh, these are some lovely women from the 1940s. This is what was cool in the 1940s. Frankly, you could still see people dressing like that today, I think, maybe. But at a time, this was what was cool. But then as the days pass, we get to the 1960s. Frankly, I think some people might dress like this today, too. But this, in two decades, this is how much fashion had changed. This is how much the cool had changed. It only gets better because then we get to the 1980s, baby. Oh, yeah. I think we had an over-surplus of material in the 1980s. And hairspray, for that matter. We didn't know what to do with it, so we just wore it. This is the 1980s. And then the 1990s. Pants were bigger in the 1990s. Uh, but then we get to my favorite, the 2000s. I mean, was there anything cooler in the 2000s than frosted tips? There it is. And then you have what might be deemed cool today. 
what might be cool today. Whatever is cool doesn't last. Whatever is cool changes, which means the pursuit of the cool never, ever stops. And we will do whatever it takes to be cool. We will drop habits, friends, and whole wardrobes in pursuit of something that is as fleeting as the wind, only to get it, and by getting it, we lose it, so then we have to go get it again, and then we lose it all over again. Nothing cool lasts. Which means if we want something that lasts, whether it's relationships or ideas or bonds, then cool is our enemy. Coolness prevents anything from lasting for more than a hot second. Coolness encourages us to write off people who are older than us and people who are younger than us. Coolness deters us from investing in anything because cool is always changing. But above all, coolness enjoins us to never, ever, ever let on that we need people. Because is there anything less cool than being needy? Do you know what that means? The most uncool thing we can ever do is go to church. It's the most uncool thing. Why? Because at church, we regularly show up to join with people we did not choose, we would not choose, some of whom are old and weird, some of whom are young and awkward, and the whole purpose of our being here is prayer, and the whole purpose of prayer is to openly declare, I'm a needy person. And I will be the first to tell you, there is no way to make church cool. Because I've tried. <laughs> the only thing less cool than being uncool is trying to be cool. But we envy those who are cool. And so we'll do all sorts of weird things in the church in the name of the cool, only making the church worse. But the strangest thing, like the weirdest thing of all, is that the happiest people I know, the people who can express feeling content and belonging and belovedness, they go to church. And you don't even have to take my word for it. Because studies have shown again and again and again and again that not only are people happier if they go to church on Sunday, on average, they live longer too. I remember the first time I read one of these studies that if you go to church, you're happier and you live longer. I posted online, I said, I can't wait for church to be packed on Sunday. <laughs> I mean, is there anything more than we want than to be happy and to live longer? But you know why people don't come to church, even though that is statistically true? Because the church isn't cool. But I think we're happier, and I think we live longer if we go to church because the church can destroy our propensity to envy. And not by listening to someone like me tell you, don't be envious. Do you know what that's like? That's like saying, don't think about an elephant. And you know what you're thinking about? An elephant. Telling people not to do something doesn't make them not do it. But, I think, I think there are things we can do that diminish the power of envy, the power of cool in our lives, something like what we're doing right now. We have showed up to worship, to worship God. Whether you're the first person through the door, which, by the way, every week is me, or you're the last one you slipped in during the first hymn when you thought no one was looking, it puts all of us squarely in the position of receiving an equal down payment of the grace of God. 
showing up, coming to church, it puts us in relationships with people that we would never otherwise encounter. People who will remind us of our worth and our value even when we can't stop envying everybody else. Coming to church, it gives us permission to be needy, which is the great enemy of self-righteousness. In the end, the church has a gift to give us. The gift is the gospel, and it frees us from the pursuit of the cool because the heart of the matter, the truth of the matter, is that at church, we look in the mirror and we realize that we're all needy. And we happen to worship the God who gives us what we need. And what we need has a name. It's Jesus. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.